Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Sunday School Hour here at Faith Baptist Church. Let's all grab our Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter 19. Second Kings 19 this morning. In order to really uh, appreciate 19, we have to kind of summarize what happened last week in chapter 18. If we'll remember, the Assyrians that took Israel into captivity invaded Judah. And they took a lot of their cities, they surrounded Jerusalem. And their king, does anybody remember his name, by the way? Starts with an S. Ends with a Anacharib. Sennacherib. Sennacherib, yeah. <laughs> See, Josh remembers. Good job, Josh. Thank you. There you go. Sennacherib sent some uh, messengers to the palace in Jerusalem, and Hezekiah sent messengers to meet them. And they spoke for a while, and uh, there was a lot of uh, hearsay, there was a lot of blasphemy coming from Sennacherib, and uh, a lot of discouragement coming from the messengers. And at the end of it, the uh, messengers returned to King... Um, no, no, no. Hezekiah. They returned to Hezekiah uh, in basically mourning clothes. Their clothes were rent as a symbol of mourning, from the message that they got. So this is where we're at in chapter 19. Uh, he's basically telling them, Sennacherib is telling Hezekiah and all of Judah, your God cannot help you. Uh, nobody else's God was able to help them. I came into every other country I came into and I destroyed everybody. You have no prayer, you have no hope, give up and give me what I want. And that's been his message over and over and over and over and over. And we finally come to this place where it's really starting to affect them. In chapter 19, uh, we see in verse 1, it says, It came to pass when King Hezekiah heard it, the message that we read about in chapter 18, that he rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. That is, of course, the temple. And he sent Eliakim, which was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and the elders of the priests covered with sackcloth to Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos. Now this is, in fact, the same, pro the same Isaiah that has his own book later on in the Bible, the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is where we get a lot of our uh, Old Testament prophecies about Jesus, about the things that he would endure. For example, um, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Uh, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. That's one that's quoted a lot around the Christmas season, right? And it comes from the book of Isaiah. Uh, they say that the book of Isaiah is sort of like the Bible in miniature because there are 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah, just like there are 66 books of the Bible. And they do sort of follow a similar pattern because the first 39 books, or first 39 chapters of Isaiah, are about a little harsher tone about Israel's sin and needing to repent. And then you get past that, and the last 27 books are about 
uh, prophecies and a time of peace and the return of Mount Zion and so forth like that. Uh, just like how there are 39 books in the Old Testament that has its narrative and 27 books in the New Testament that has its own special narrative. And so it is sort of, it's like the Bible in miniature in some ways. And uh, Isaiah has a lot to do, not just with the prophecies of Jesus being born in the manger and so forth, but a lot of prophecies about the end times even, we get from Isaiah. And so it's a very important book in the Bible. Uh, so this is that Isaiah that he's sending Eliakim and Shebna to, is that same Isaiah. And they said unto him, Thus saith Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble, and of rebuke and blasphemy. For the children are come to the birth, and there is no strength to bring forth. It may be the Lord thy God will hear all the words uh, will hear all the words of Rebshakeh, whom the king of Assyria, his master, hath sent to reproach the living God, and will reprove the words which the Lord thy God hath heard. Wherefore, lift up thy prayer for the remnant that are left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. And Isaiah said unto them, Thus shall you say to your master, Thus saith the Lord, Be not afraid of the words which thou hast heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will send a blast upon him, and he shall hear a rumor, and shall return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. So we see firstly this morning is that it is Isaiah's encouraging message. Isaiah's encouraging message comes at a moment of incredible despair. We see it says that when he received news, he, and this is their symbols of mourning, he rent his clothes, he covered himself in sackcloth, and sometimes it'll say he covers himself in sackcloth and ashes. They'll pour ashes on their head. And that's their symbols of mourning. Uh, sackcloth is very dark. Clothing, it's not very uh, fun clothing, it's not colorful, it's not bright, it's not fancy. It's the cheapest clothing you could purchase, and it's just the most basic color you could find. That's why even today, a lot of times, a symbol of mourning in many cultures is to wear black, and to wear all black. And even for many days, a widow will wear all black anytime she goes out as a symbol of her mourning. And this is where it comes from, is the sackcloth and the, the renting of the clothing it's also a symbol of their mourning and their grief and the ashes upon their head as a reminder of ashes to ashes and dust to dust. Uh, so he's in mourning, but nobody's died yet per se, right? So what is he in mourning of? He's in mourning over the way he thought things would go, right? He's in mourning over um, the kind of reign he thought he was going to have as king, and you might think that's a silly thing to—that's uh, a silly thing to grieve over. It's not like somebody died, but if you've ever been at this point in your life, you do kind of understand how he feels. And I feel like everybody reaches that place in life where they realize life isn't going to quite turn out the way you wanted it to. 
You know, it's going to take a turn you didn't plan for when you were in your teens or early 20s, right? Sometimes life takes a funny bounce. But if we go with it sometimes, if we just trust the Lord through those things, we wind up in an even better place. And so I feel like this is where Hezekiah is at. He's at that place where he's realizing things aren't going to go the way I wanted them to. Right? I didn't want to have any of this trouble. I didn't want to have to deal with a war. No leader wants to have to deal with a war, but sometimes war is on your doorstep. And sometimes you have to deal with it. So he's in mourning over having to deal with these things over the loss of uh, his ideal kingdom. And uh, it's relatable. You know, when I went to go start this church, having had no idea what it meant to start a church, and having had nobody who's done it before really tell me what it was going to be like, I expected to stay in that, you know, rented library room for a couple of years and then we'd be able to buy a piece of land and then a couple years later put a little building on it and a couple years later grow that building out and I didn't realize because that's the way it was in the 1940s and that's the model they're still using to this day and I didn't realize that land is a little bit more expensive now than it was in 1940 and uh, you can't just run out there say for a couple of years with a handful of people and go out and buy a piece of land it's not the way it works anymore. And so it's going to take us a little bit longer than I planned to get where we need to be or where we're going to be, uh, but we will get there. right? And that's the thing is and everybody has that point in life where things didn't, aren't, you realize things aren't going to quite go the way you had planned for yourself for them to go. I planned on uh, graduating from Bible college after four years in Bible college, graduating, taking a church. You know, me and Amanda were already married, and, you know, we're going to have a couple of kids by this age and, and go out and pastor a church. And, you know, I'd have a few years of pastoring under my experience before I even hit my 30s. Let me tell you, folks, that is not the way my life went at all. Me and Amanda had a lot of trouble having kids at first, and it was a real hardship and difficulty for us. But we did eventually have kids. We had them later than we wanted to have them, but we did have them. You know, and that was a, a real struggle for us. And, you know, things took longer to get to where I wanted to be, and some of those things didn't happen at all. You know, you expect things to go the way they went for everybody else. I was going to go out, call some churches, you know, present my ministry to them, raise some money up, and start a church. And that is not the way that went. But you know what? It, it might have wound up even better. And that's the way life can go if we'll allow it to. So he's in mourning here for that, that period of life where he hit struggles he wasn't expecting to hit. Uh, and then it said that he sent the prophets to, there are these two men to Isaiah, and these two men are discouraged as well. Everybody's discouraged. Everybody's feeling down. And it's one of those things, remember last week where they said, hey, speak to us in your language, not in our language, because there are some people sitting on the wall, and if they hear what you're saying, they're going to get real discouraged. We can speak your language, so speak to us in your language. Don't speak to us in our language because there's people on the wall. And they responded by saying, yeah, we want them to hear us. We want them to get discouraged. We want you to be scared. You go tell your king you're all going to die. And he addresses the people on the wall. You and your children are all going to die. Give us what we want. And they leave. And the people on the wall were instructed, do not respond to him. So they didn't. But it's in that moment that people look to their leader, right? 
I don't know what to do, so I'm going to go look to the guy who's supposed to know what to do. And that guy put on sackcloth and ashes. That's not a great sign right there, you know. You know, if the, the, if the United States was threatened by another country, by China or Russia or something with war, it'd be a pretty bad sign if the president came out in mourning clothes. You know, that'd be a bad sign. Wouldn't be surprised, but it'd be a bad sign. That's what happened. So now everybody's scared. Everybody's mourning. Everybody's discouraged. And so they come to Isaiah, and uh, they're, they're, they're basically given up over to defeatism. But Isaiah has a message for them they didn't expect. Uh, the message they bring to Isaiah from Hezekiah is that this day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy. We know why it's a day of trouble. It's a day of rebuke, right? Because Sennacherib rebuked Hezekiah and all of Judah. But don't also forget, these are the same people who just destroyed Israel. Right? And that's kind of Sennacherib's point. He said, we just led them captive, we took their capital... You worship the same God they do, and their God didn't help them. Why should you think he's going to help you? And that was a real jarring moment for, for Judah. You know, they watched Israel being led captive. Something they thought would never happen. And they asked themselves, how could God allow this to happen? How could, if there's a loving God, how could he allow his people to be led captive and to and it allowed these strangers to live in our lands. How could God allow this to happen? And the matter, the fact, matter of the fact is, yes, God did allow that to happen. But he also warned his people for many, many years, this is what's going to happen if you don't repent, if you don't get right, if you don't start living the way that I taught you how to live, you cannot have my protection. And the world will have you the way the world wants you. And they didn't repent, they didn't get right with God, and that's exactly what happened. And we look at history and world events and people talk about, um, for example, the Holocaust. We all know how evil and horrible and atrocity the Holocaust was. Something should have never existed. And people say, if there's a loving God, how can something like that have existed? How can something like that have happened? My answer to that is, it's not always God's fault. Because the Jews, while always being God's people, just like when they were led captive in the Bible, rejected Jesus, right? They rejected their Messiah. And the Bible clearly tells us that because the Jews rejected Jesus, that the mission of telling people about salvation has been given to us, the Gentiles. Right? So it's not as though they've been replaced, but because they rejected Christ, they've been temporarily set aside. They're choosing to live outside of God's sphere of protection, right? because they rejected their Messiah. So when things like this happen, it's not necessarily God's fault. It's a decision they made to reject Jesus. It's a decision they made to, to live outside of his will. And when God's people do that, they're punished. Right? And when God's people live like that, God can't protect them the way that he would like to. Same thing's true about us. 
We can't go out and live like the world, live in sin, do whatever, whatever we feel like, and then when bad things happen, say, oh, What? Why? Well, it's because you didn't let God protect you the way he wanted you to, he, the way he wanted to. So this is what happens. It's not always necessarily about punishment, but sometimes it's just the way it works. God's not going to follow us into our sin. And so there, it's a day of trouble. It's a day of rebuke. It's a day of blasphemy because Sennacherib's blasphemed God and his truth and his name. And they're still reeling from what Sennacherib did to their friends Israel. But how many years did Israel go, one king after another? We taught about for a long time, did that which was evil on the side of the Lord, did that which was evil on the side of the Lord, did that which was evil on the side of the Lord, until finally they were led into captivity. So they come here talking about the day of uh, trouble and rebuke and blasphemy, for the children are come to the birth and there is no strength to bring forth. Right? Uh, the day... A newborn baby is born. It's a very exciting day, right? Especially for our family because they kind of turned it into a party there in the waiting room. I remember the last two times it was mine and Amanda's turn, and I missed being in the waiting room. I tell you that I tell you, being the dad and there's just not something special about being there watching your child being born. It's amazing. I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. But I remember when Tiffany was having kids. And what was going on in that waiting room, that's a party for my family, okay? That's a good time. You want to be in that waiting room. That's the party to be at. Especially if my aunt's there. That's a crazy time. This yellow laughing because you know. <laughs> so a child bringing forth is supposed to be a good time, but when complications arise, it goes from a good time to a terrifying moment. That doctor comes in there and explains... We're having some troubles. There's some sort of a complication. It all of a sudden goes from really fun to absolutely terrifying. And that's what he's talking about here. Uh, when he says, the children are come to the birth and there is no strength to bring forth. In other words, this moment in our, our history that was supposed to be a moment of joy and happiness might turn out to be a moment of great despair. A moment of great tragedy for us and this is where their mindset is um, it may be the Lord thy God will hear all the words of Rabshakeh whom the king of Assyria his master had sent to reproach the living God that's what they're afraid of they're afraid of that God is going to answer Sennacherib's prayer rather than theirs and, and that might be a shocking thing to you. You might say, how on earth could they think that? Well, they think that because that's what they see, right? And we as human beings, that's our natural inclination, right? That's what we go off of. What I see, that's what I believe, right? I don't want to have the wool pulled over my eyes. I don't want to be fooled. What I see, that's what I believe. You know, and if I see things aren't going my way, I'm just going to believe that that's what God wanted. So that's kind of where their head is. They're saying, well, I see that our numbers are not nearly as big as theirs. Things are not looking our way. Maybe it's God's will that we end up like Israel did. And that's what he's saying here. Maybe God would rather answer his prayer than our prayer. But this too is a lack of faith. Because even a David can slay a Goliath. Just because things look bad doesn't mean that it's, an, it's a for sure failure. 
Because God hath chosen the weak things of this world to confound the mighty. And God hath chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the things which are wise. And just because it looks like they're bigger than us and stronger than us and wiser than us doesn't mean that they're going to defeat us. Because greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. He's already given up. It's looking like God's going to answer their prayers. And this was the attitude and the words that they came to Isaiah with. And then we see Isaiah's message to these defeated people is one of incredible encouragement. He says to them, Thus shall you say to your master, their master, of course, being Hezekiah, Thus saith the Lord. There's no doubt at this point these are God's words. These are not Isaiah's words. This isn't Isaiah saying, I, I, I think this is what God's going to This is what I believe God is going to say. This is how I believe God thinks about this. No, these were God's words directly. You didn't have to doubt it. You didn't have to wonder about it. You can take that to the bank. These are God's words. He says, Be not afraid of the words which thou hast heard. Be not afraid. He's saying to them, look, I know you're scared, and I know things look bad, but you're just going to have to trust me. Because the Lord has said he knows, and he knows what he's doing. And then even though it looks bad, you're just going to have to trust him. Anybody remember a story in the book of Judges where a man came with a great army to defeat, I think it was the Philistines, I'm probably wrong. And then as on their journey there, God says, you know what, that's too many people. Uh, get rid of half of them. Half of them? Yeah, get rid of half of them. Okay, so if half of them go home. And they get another little ways down the road, and he says, you know what, God says, that's ah, still too big. I'll tell you what, they've got what, 10,000 people? Uh, you really only need about 300 I'm sorry, God. Something's wrong with my ears. I thought you said 300. Yeah, 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 300. That's all you need. Everybody else can go home. Okay, God. <clears throat> hey, guys. I mean, <clears throat> hey, guys. Uh, these 300 stay. Everybody else goes home. What? Are you sure? You sure about that, Gideon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. That's what God said. That's what God said. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. So they, they go home and he's like, all right, it's time to prepare for battle. We need to practice with our swords. Everybody get your weapons ready. And God says, hey, wait, 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 wait. Yeah? Uh, put the swords down. Okay. Um, so, like, what, a, a bow and arrow instead? No, 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 no. A pitcher. A pitcher? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like a vase, like a pitcher. Okay. Just an empty pitcher? No, of course it's not empty. You're going to put a lamp in it. Okay. But our other hand has the sword, right? Nope. Gets even better. Oh, I bet it does. It's going to have a trumpet. We're going to fight 10,000 soldiers with 300 men holding lamps that are hidden by a 
a pitcher and a trumpet in the other hand, yeah, it's going to be great. Okay, anybody ever felt this in their life before? Like, like God, they've got a sword, I've got a pitcher with a lamp in it. What, what is going on here? I don't, why, why do I have this? What is happening? Why don't I have that? That seems like it would be more helpful. Are you sure? Because you know, the forefront of your head is like, this is God. Of course he knows. He's sure. And the back part of your head is like, we're sure this is God, right? Like, <laughs> we're not being fooled here. This isn't like, you know, Gabriel decided to play a prank on me today or something. This is actually God, right? And there they go, to the top of that hill in the middle of the night with the pitchers and the trumpets. And all 300 men are lined at the very top of that hill. And the enemy is down below. In the middle of the night, all 300 men blow their trumpets. And all 300 men broke the pitchers. And from seemingly the middle of nowhere, 300 legions seem to appear in front of these 10,000 soldiers. So to them, it looked like about 300,000 men were about to come down from the other side of that hill. These lights popped up out of nowhere. These trumpeters, 300 trumpeters means about, you know, 300,000 men. And in the middle of the night, they jumped up and they saw that and they heard that and they got scared and they got tangled up in their own tents and they're like, they got so scrambled, they started fighting each other. And Gideon and his men didn't have to raise a single sword before half of them were dead and the other half were running for their lives. All they had to do was cut down the rest. Chase them down. So what seemed like a really foolish, impossible task turned out to make a lot of sense once they actually saw how it was supposed to work out. And that's what Isaiah is saying here. I know it seems impossible, but don't be afraid. I know what's going to happen, and I've got a plan. And this is part of it. Be not afraid. You know what the Bible says to us? In the New Testament, the Bible says that God has not given unto us the spirit of fear, but of love and of peace and of a sound mind. Now, why does he list those things? Because those are the things that will eradicate fear from the life of a Christian. Sometimes fear of a person can come about as a result of a lack of loving that person. Right? Like, my kids may do things to hurt me. Right? You know, no parent loves to hear, Daddy, I hate you. That stings, but... You know, I'm not going to be afraid of that because I have a great love for my kids that outweighs anything I might be afraid of. You know, there's a, sometimes fear comes about as a result of a lack of peace. Sometimes you feel like you're fighting a war on four or five to six different fronts and you can't hardly catch your breath. You know, you feel like you're fighting a war, sometimes just trying to get to work, at work, at lunch. You know, you go to come home and you want to be able to have some peace at home and then you've got more battles you got to fight at home. This is falling apart. That person's mad at you. This is going that way. We got a letter from the IRS. Oh, now the tags are out on the car. Well, the tire just blew out. Well, one of the kids is throwing up now. We got... Then you got, you're fighting a war on 14 different fronts. It feels like you can't ever have peace. 
But we find peace in the midst of the storm by having God and a good daily relationship with him. You find peace in the midst of the storm. So God has not given us a spirit of fear because he's given us peace. He's not given us a spirit of fear because he's given us love. But also, a lot of times we have fear because we fail to have a sound mind. Right? We fear what we don't understand, what we don't know about. Right? For kids, a lot of times they're scared of like bugs or animals or something, and that's because they don't really know what it is. It's a freaky-looking thing, and just something in their natural instincts tells them to stay away from it in order to keep safe. Right? But once they kind of know what that is, and you say, oh, that's, uh, you know, that's just a moth, or you know, that's just a, we call those a June bug where I'm from. And they know what it is, and they know it's not dangerous to them. They stop being afraid of it. Same thing's true with us Christians. When we can function in life with a sound mind, stop being afraid of those things we don't understand, use logic and reasoning like the Lord has instructed us to, we can avoid fear then as well. Because you're less afraid of something you understand. It doesn't mean bad things might not happen, but it means you're going to be less afraid of it. Because you've taken the time to understand it. That's how God wants them to be here. Don't be afraid. Have love. Have peace. Have a sound mind. Understand. Use your wits. Be not afraid of the words which thou hast heard, uh, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. So and this is another point. He's saying they're out there talking against me. Why would I bless them? Right? There are worldly-minded people that have a worldly form of success. But people who have success by cheating and cutting corners and breaking the law don't get to keep their success. Right? Eventually, their sins are found out, their crimes are discovered, and eventually they lose everything they ever had and probably wind up going to jail. Their success does not last, but when the Lord gives us a success and we get it because we got there the right way, we didn't cut corners. We didn't break the law. We didn't cheat. We get to keep that success. It takes longer. You have to work harder for it. But it's long-lasting. And here, that's what the Lord is saying to Israel. He's saying, we're going to get there. We're going to get there the right way. They're blaspheming me. They're doing things, beg, borrow, steal. They don't care who they hurt so long as they get it. And their peace will not last. And it was true. Because the nation of Assyria was swallowed up by another nation uh, that we'll talk about in a few lessons called Babylon. But he's promising them here, I'm not going to bless these people who are cursing my name. He says, behold, I will send a blast upon him. Uh, he says, I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. It says, your enemy will be defeated without you ever having to lift a finger. And you know, that sounds really good, but that might not have been what Hezekiah wanted. You think about that? It may have been what Hezekiah wanted was to be the one to thrust that sword into his chest. He might have wanted to be the one to lop his head off his shoulders. God says, no, no, I'll take care of it. And maybe Hezekiah says, I don't want you to take care of it. I want you to give me the strength to take care of it. He says, no. That's not the way it's going to work. God says, I'm going to take care of it. That's the way it is for us too sometimes. A lot of times we want 
to say, okay, God, you give me the strength and I'll take care of everything. And God says, no, I don't need you to do that. I'm just going to take care of it for you. Well, okay, that's yeah, thank you. That's that's very generous of you. But you know, I'd, just, I'd rather I'd just rather do it myself. You know, and God says, "Yeah, I know you're not doing it." <sighs> All right, okay, that's fine. But we want we want to do it ourselves. We want to look back and say, "Look at what I did. Look at what I accomplished." You know, pulled myself up by my bootstraps, and I got myself here. By the way, can I tell you that's a lie? Nobody gets themselves there. For many reasons, one of which is because God got you there. You didn't get yourself there. God did that. You didn't have a single hand in that. That was all the Lord. Secondly is because somebody, some person somewhere gave you a hand somewhere. Nobody got to where they are successfully by themselves. Somebody opened a door for you. Somebody gave you an opportunity. Somebody helped you. Right? Receiving help is not something we, be, we should be ashamed of. I think a lot of us grew up with a generation or two older than us that kind of told us the way it was in their day. And the reason it's not that way for us nowadays is just because we're lazy. You know, but what needs to be understood is, is that we've had a run of unfortunate circumstances in our country and things just don't work the way they used to. Maybe they will again soon one day. I don't know, as it's looking right now, you know. It's the status quo. But maybe in a few years, I don't know, that'll change. But for right now, things are harder than they used to be. And that's just the way it is. They're just a lot tougher than they used to be, and we have to work a lot harder for a lot less. But you know, that doesn't mean that our lives are any less valuable than 30, 40, 50 years ago. You know, it used to be that if a person lived with their parents, they were considered a loser, right? In the 80s and 90s and even early 2000s, if somebody lived with their parents, they were like, oh my gosh, what a loser. Nowadays, that's a, that's a trope, right? That's a, that's a meme. People make that joke about how millennials just live with their parents. That's just what happens, right? That's just what they do. And I've, you know, heard some people make that argument. If you're not in the military, you don't just have a really successful job. You have to have some help financially. You have to have a two-family income or more in order to be able to pay all your bills. That's something a lot of people can't do. There's no shame in needing help. If you need help, ask for it. That's something I've had to teach a lot of people as far as our church goes. We have the ability to help people. And there's so many people out there that will just struggle. And they'll just suffer. And they'll say, no, no, I'm going to get myself there. Nobody gets themselves there. If you need help, the Lord will help you. And maybe he'll use us to do it. He'll take care of our problems for us, sometimes without us. And that's what he did for Hezekiah. He took care of his problem without Hezekiah doing anything, which may not have been what Hezekiah wanted. I can tell you as a husband, that's not what I want, right? I don't want somebody to take care of my problems for me. I want to do it. I want to get up. I want to work hard. I want to get the paycheck. I want to pay the bills. That's what I want. That's what I think a man should do, right? That's not my lot in life. I make some money. I pay all the bills that I can, but I have to have help. And you know what? That's where the Lord has me. 
And instead of beating myself up like I have for the past couple of decades about it, I just accept this is God's will for me right now, and I'm grateful for it. Sometimes he defeats our battles for us without our help. And for a lot of us, that's the struggle, right? We don't want to not be involved. We don't want to be part of the help, but sometimes that's just the way it falls out. So we see Isaiah's encouraging message. You don't worry about that king. You don't lose sleep over him. You don't have to ever have to worry about him again. I'm going to take care of him in his own country. Which brings us to secondly, and we're probably, this is probably going to be a two-part lesson again, is Sennacherib's discouragement. And we see Sennacherib coming again. That's the way the devil works, right? The Lord brings encouragement. You don't worry about it. I'm going to take care of this guy. You have some encouragement. The devil hears that, and he comes along with some more discouragement. Hey, don't listen to that encouragement. That's all fluff and stuff and, you know, mind games and, and you know, cat posters and stuff, and that's fine. But you look at the situation the way it is. You don't have a whole lot of hope here. You're in danger. You need to be scared, and you need to be worried. That's the devil's message. In verse 8, Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he had heard he was departed from Lachish. Remember what Isaiah just said? Uh, I will... Uh, I will send a blast upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. What do we just say that uh, the king of Assyria uh, was warring against Libna? Why? He returned back to his own homeland? Why? For he had heard that he was departed from Lachish. Right? Word had reached the king of Assyria that enemies were invading his homeland, and so he went back to Assyria to defend his country. And when he heard say of uh, Tirhaka, king of Ethiopia, behold, he has come out uh, to fight against thee, he sent messengers again unto Hezekiah to make sure Hezekiah doesn't have any hope. Just make sure we keep this guy depressed and down and suffering. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Let not thy God, whom thou trustest, deceive thee. That is a bad opening statement for somebody who wants you to not believe in God. Don't let God lie to you. Don't let God lie. Don't let God trick you. Who's the liar and the father of it? Who is that? That's right. Jesus tells us in the New Testament, for he is a liar and the father of it. He invented the lie all the way back in Genesis 3. What did he say to... Uh, what did he say to, to Eve? She says, God told us not to eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And he says, ye shall not surely die. A liar and the father of it. Invented the lie. And here he's saying, oh, God's a liar. Don't believe him. God's a liar. God is not a liar. You would think that would be pretty self-explanatory. Uh, except sometimes we need to be reminded, God did say he was going to do these things for us, and God doesn't lie. Right? Sometimes our head knows things, but our heart needs to catch up, right? Like my brain knows this is what the Bible teaches me about God, but my heart isn't quite sure it's true. But sometimes we need to let our hearts catch up to our heads. 
Let not thy God, whom thou trustest, deceive thee, saying, Jerusalem shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, thou hast heard what the king of Assyria has done to all lands by destroying them utterly. And shalt thou be delivered? He's raised himself above God. He's saying, your God is nothing to me. Don't, don't let him trick you. I will crush your God. I will put him under my boot. I am the almighty king. So he's really ascended himself to the level of the gods here. He's going to find out how wrong he is. Uh, have the gods of the nations delivered them which my fathers have destroyed? As Gozan and Haran and Rezpa, or Rezef and the children of Eden, which are in Thelasar? Where is the king of Hamath and the king of Arpad? and the king of the cities of Seravim, I'm sorry, Sepharvim, of Hina and Eva. Now these are all names that don't mean anything to us, but basically what it is, is a list of his accomplishments. It's a list of his uh, triumphs, if you will. He says, look at all these places I have taken by force. And that can be intimidating. When you look at all these uh, other people and other places that have succeeded where you have failed, that's intimidating. You say, wow, they've really got something figured out here. Have you ever played a game with somebody who's just really good at that game? We were playing uh, Yahtzee the other night for Sylvia's birthday. And I kid you not, every time Jacob would touch those dice. He picked up the first time and we thought it was funny. He's like, oh, by the power of the force. And he rolled the dice out and he got, what was it, like a full house on his first roll? He, and he kept doing that. And first time I thought it was cool, and I was like, oh, wow, he actually did it. Okay, that's pretty cool. Then his second turn around, he goes, come on, sixes, and rolled three sixes. And I'm like, what is happening? And then his third turn, he did it again. And I'm like, okay, he's like rolling it, and he's like, okay, I want a five, I want a five, and rolled it, and the one dice in the cup rolled to a five. I was like, okay, what is happening right now? You know, because somebody who's just really good at a game, it can be kind of, you know, intimidating to continue to play when you're down that many points. But that's the situation that uh, Hezekiah found himself in. He's looking at all the accomplishments that this king has and all the, the places he's conquered. And it's scary and it's intimidating. You know, the same thing's true about us in life. You know, when we embark on something new or we attempt to achieve something or succeed at something, and we start to look around at all the giants around us that have been doing it for years and are far more successful at it than we are, it's intimidating. And it's terrifying to think that, man, I might never get there. Look at how many accomplishments they have. I might never have that much. And that's what he wanted. He wanted Hezekiah to be discouraged by this. But we've got to remember that just because they've succeeded doesn't mean that we're going to fail. Right? If we go to battle with the Lord, we can't lose. I mean, it's like having a cheat code in a video game. You imagine being Moses fighting Egypt? You shouldn't win that fight. And then all of a sudden you pray to God and he drops an ocean on the Egyptians. That's like a cheat code, you know? How are you going to beat that? You're Joshua... You've got these people that have been wandering the wilderness. They're not exactly trained soldiers. 
and they go and fight 13 nations of warriors ready to do battle from the time they were born. And they go in, and they start losing a battle, and God just, like, drops a wall on them. How are you going to beat that? You know? They're battling against uh, these uh, ten nations got together against Joshua, and they're going to battle him. And uh, they trap, just by sheer happenstance, the kings of these ten nations in a, in a cave, and they roll a giant stone over it so they can't escape. So now they're leaderless, and they're kind of running around like crazy. And all Joshua and the children of Israel have to do is chase them down and kill them, and they've conquered the land. And uh, they're running out of time. They're running out of daylight. The sun is starting to set, right? So they're fixing a getaway. They're fixing a regroup and come back at them. Joshua needs more daylight to succeed. So he says, hey, God, can you just hold the sun still for a second? And he does. You guys, I can't begin to explain to you the physics of why that shouldn't be possible. Because if the, the actual sun was actually still in the sky, we would gravity would stop to stop working and we should all just like start floating off into space. But the sun stood still in the sky and physics continued to work the way it did. The way it always had. It's like a cheat code. How do you beat that? You know? What in the world? They send one guy in to fight an army of thousands. And his name's David. And come to find out, he's taking the foreskins of dead soldiers so that he can marry the king's daughter. And he succeeds. And it's nasty, but he succeeds. When you fight with the Lord, it's almost like an unfair advantage. Why would you not use the advantage of the Lord? There's nothing to be discouraged about. And we'd say, of course, he should remember that. So should we, and we fail to also. So we're going to look at, lastly and real quick here, a few verses, is Hezekiah's prayer. Verse 14 says, Hezekiah received the letter of the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up into the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, which dwellest between the cherubims, thou art God, even thou alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, thou hast made heaven and earth. Lord, bow down thine ear and hear. Open, Lord, thine eyes and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which had sent him to reproach the living God. Of a truth, Lord, the king of Assyria hath destroyed the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they have destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord our God, I beseech thee, save thou us out of his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord God, and even thou only. And I tell you, in that moment where he learned to go to God in prayer and gain the confidence of having God's uh power on his side is where he truly won the battle. We'll go on next week to talk about the rest of the things that happen and uh, how, uh, how Judah managed to succeed where Israel failed. But right here in this moment with Hezekiah, that 
is where he succeeds. He goes to God, he prays to God, and then he learns to trust in God. And there is where he learns to have success. We want to truly succeed in the way that the Lord wants us to succeed. We've got to learn to go to him, and we have to learn to trust him. Now that is more than all the time we had for this morning. We will be back this morning at 5 after 11.